welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquad-Paz. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to top scientists and fields ranging from biochemistry to financial economics. Today, we talk to Tanya Chartrand, Roy Bostock Marketing Professor and Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. Dr. Chartrand focuses on non-conscious processes that affect consumer behavior and social cognition. She is on the editorial board of the Journal of Consumer Research, the Journal of Consumer Psychology, Personality, and Social Psychology Bulletin, and Social Cognition. She was also the co-chair of the annual conference of the Association for Consumer Research last year in St. Louis. Hello and welcome, Dr. Chartrand. Hello, thanks for having me. So you wrote an article titled The um, Antecedents and Consequences of Human Behavioral Mimicry for the 2013 Annual Review of Psychology. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. How did you first become interested in this topic? Well, I became interested um, during uh, graduate school, and um, actually it was just, it's anecdotal. I had, um, I worked in a lab where there were some students senior to me, and one of the um one of my fellow PhD students um had an interesting mannerism where he would just kind of uh, pull on his beard a lot and although of course I don't have a beard I noticed that whenever I was in the room with him I would start sort of pulling at my skin where a beard would be if I had one <laughs> um and I I was sort of horrified when I realized I was doing this so I would sit on my hands and and make sure I wasn't doing this but then as soon as I stop thinking about it, you know, five minutes later, I'd noticed that I was kind of pulling on my face again <laughs> and doing what he did. Um, and I thought there must be something just merely about seeing him do that, that that's kind of making me do it too. And so that's where I got my initial interest in it. And then the, you know, the debate um, in the lab was, well, is it because, you know, he's a senior student and I kind of I'm hoping to be like him someday, um, so kind of an affiliative thing, or is it um, just merely seeing him do it makes me um, do it? So um, that's one of the things we tried to, to look at in our initial studies on this. So that's, that's really interesting. Can you define behavioral mimicry for us a little bit further? Um, so behavioral mimicry, it's basically when two or more people engage in the same behavior at about the same time. Um, and the way we define it is any general gross motor movement. So um, typically we look at things like um, posture, mannerisms, um, but we can also, you know, things like yawning have been looked at, um, food consumption, playing with a pen, uh, handshake angle and speed, uh, co-speech gestures and things like that, um, but any general gross motor movement. So how is this different from imitation? Um, so imitation usually refers to more of a conscious process where we're trying, we're actively trying to imitate someone because usually we want to learn how to do something in a certain way, and so um, we intentionally imitate them. Um, mimicry, the way we're defining it, is is not conscious, not intentional. Uh, we don't mean to do it. We just start mimicking someone else's behaviors, someone's motor movements, um, but but it's less um, goal-directed. It's not that we're trying to learn how to do something. Um, we just unconsciously start, you know, um, picking up their posture, or their mannerisms, or their gestures. Okay, so so we do that. We do it unconsciously. 
there must be a reason for it. What is what is the point of mimicry? What does it do? Well, what we've been finding is that it, it seems to serve um, as social glue that kind of brings people together. Um, so we think that it has a social bonding function, basically, um, when mimicry is linked strongly with rapport, liking between people, having smooth interactions. Um, so it does seem to, to serve this important um, purpose of, of bringing people together. What, what, are, what are the causes of mimicry? Like, who do we mimic and when do we do it? Well, you know, just the mere presence of another person engaging in an action um, leads to a certain baseline amount of mimicry. So even if you're with a stranger, someone you've never met before, someone um, you're not expecting to ever see again, um, you don't necessarily have any goal um, in your interaction with them, um, even in those minimal conditions, you still see a baseline amount of mimicry where just seeing them you know, engage in the behavior makes you more likely to engage in that mannerism or that posture uh, yourself. So there certainly um, is mimicry under those minimal conditions, kind of baseline amount of mimicry. But having said that, there are certain things that can certainly lead to more mimicry in a certain um, situation and some things that can even lead to uh, a reduction in mimicry. So these are different things that moderate it can be, you know, individual difference um, variables. It can be, um, you know, certain goal that um, a person has in the interaction. These kinds of things can, can influence it. So you were talking earlier about wanting to affiliate, liking a person. Well, so... Uh, if there is pre-existing rapport between two people, there will tend to be more mimicry between them. That's true. But even if there isn't pre-existing rapport, um, if you have the goal to affiliate with someone else, you want them to like you, um, you want to befriend them, um, you will unconsciously start mimicking them more. And so the idea is that <clears throat> mimicry is sort of a, a, a tool in our repertoire that to use that we use to get people to like us, but we don't realize it. It's not a conscious um, tool. It's not something that we say, oh, I'm going to now sit the way she's sitting so that she'll like me more. But we unconsciously start doing that and pick up on their mannerisms, gestures, and postures more if we do have this goal to affiliate with them, if we, if we want them to like us. So um, if you look at situations where people tend to have a goal to affiliate, so for example, if they're interacting with someone who has more power than they do, they will start to um, automatically mimic them more, mimic their behaviors more. If you're feeling particularly different from other people for some reason, you've just been given feedback that you're pretty unusual in some way, um, you will uh, have a goal to affiliate and start um, unconsciously mimicking other people more. Or if you've been excluded, especially if you've been excluded from um, an in-group that's important to you, then, then you'll start automatically mimicking more. So, so in general, anything that can lead you to have a goal to affiliate um, can lead to an increase, uh, an unconscious increase in mimicry. It's not something that we're um, you know, aware of doing. Um, some other things that can lead to um, more mimicry in a given situation. If you're in a good mood, you tend to mimic more. Uh, we also tend to mimic similar others more than we mimic dissimilar others. So in-group members uh, tend to be mimicked more than out-group members. What, what does um, personality 
due to the amount of mimicry that, that, that we do? Um, we have found that um, individual differences in pro-social orientation do moderate um, the amount of mimicry. So, um, for example, some people um, have more of an interdependent self-construal, so they tend to think of themselves as they relate to other people more. Um, they tend to mimic more. Um, and, in fact, even on, a, on the cultural level, um, Culture, people from collectivistic cultures tend to have more of this interdependent self-construal, and uh, they seem to mimic more um, as well. Um, the other big individual difference thing that, that, that relates to mimicry is empathy. So people who are high in perspective-taking um, tend to mimic more um, than people who are low in perspective-taking, and by that I just mean people who naturally sort of put themselves in other people's shoes and try to, you know, take the perspective of others, they tend to mimic more than people who don't, you know, naturally do that a lot. Um, and and self-monitoring. So people who are, are high self-monitors, they're always kind of thinking about what behavior would be appropriate in a given situation. Um, they tend to mimic more than people who are more low in, in self-monitoring. Um, is, is there such a thing as too much mimicry? Well, um, first of all, if it's, if it's noticed, then the answer is yes. So um, in all of the research done so far on mimicry, when, when people are mimicked in the lab, um, it's, it's, uh, people make sure that, that they're not going to be aware of the, mimic, of the mimicry. So um, they do it subtly. They mimic them subtly by waiting a few seconds um, before they engage in the same behavior. They also do slight variations of the behavior. So maybe if someone's scratching their ear, they'll touch the top of their head instead. So the reasons for this is just to make sure that it's not noticed because um, when people know that they're being mimicked and they, they see that, oh, this person's copying the way I'm sitting or my gestures, um, it can have a backfiring effect and they certainly don't like that. They might think that they're being mocked. Um, they might think that the person's ingratiating themselves um, in some kind of negative way. Um, so it's really all the pro-social you know, consequences and, and this um, the social glue kind of effect only happens if people are not aware of being mimicked and it kind of goes under the radar. If it becomes um, conscious, then, uh, then all these kinds of things go away. So um, there could be too much mimicry in that sense. Um, but the other answer to that is we seem to have these implicit expectations for how much mimicry we expect in a certain type of interaction. So um, although there's sort of this baseline amount of mimicry that we seem to expect in all interactions, we also kind of unconsciously recognize that there's more mimicry in some types of interactions than in others. So for example, if we're interacting with someone of a different race, um, we seem to have this implicit expectation that there's going to be less mimicry there with a cross-race um, interaction partner than there would be with a same-race interaction partner. So um, when that's violated, when these implicit expectations are violated, it can have some serious consequences. So if I mimicked either more than I'm expecting to be mimicked in a certain situation or less than I'm expecting to be mimicked in a certain situation, um, my self-control is negatively affected. So I'll, um, 
I, I exert less self-control in a later task. I may have less fine motor control. I may eat more junk food. I procrastinate more. Um, so it can have these kind of important downstream consequences. And that can be if you're mimicked too much. So if someone who has power over you mimics you a lot, that's violating these kind of unconscious expectations you have. You're, you're not normally mimicked a lot by people who have more power over you. So when that does happen and when they mimic you a lot, um, that negatively impacts your um, later self-control. Um, and similarly, if you're you know, mimicked less than you kind of implicitly expect to be in a given type of situation, um, that will also lead to le uh, less self-control. Right. So you're, you're talking about the consequences here of levels of mimicry that we don't expect. So let's 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 get a little bit um, more into the whole consequence part of, of, of your paper. What does it do to a person to mimic and um, what does it do to a person who is being mimicked? What are what are the effects of that? So there's there's quite a bit of research now on on the consequences of being mimicked by someone else. Um, there's more on that piece of it. Um, it. It has a number of consequences. So um, it has a number of cognitive consequences. It leads to an assimilative mindset, kind of bringing things together. Uh, it leads to more field-dependent processing. Um, it also leads to more convergent thinking, kind of connecting the, the dots type of creative thinking. Um, it leads to more conformity. Um, so people tend to behave in line with the stereotypes p other people have of them. Um, so women do worse at math, for example, if they're being mimicked. Um, they're more persuaded um, by the mimicker. So if the, the person mimicking them um, is trying to persuade them of something, they'll be more persuaded if, uh, if they are being mimicked. Um, so there's a lot of kind of downstream consequences for uh, the individual um, of being mimicked. It can also have these, uh, on a social level, it leads to more liking um, between people. So um, if someone, um, if you're being mimicked by someone else, you're going to like that person more. You're going to think the interaction with, with them went more smoothly. You'll have more empathy for them. Uh, you'll feel more similar to them. But interestingly, it also leads to this general pro-social orientation that goes beyond the mimicry dyad. So people who are mimicked not only uh, like the person who mimicked them more um, and are more likely to help them if they have a need, but they're actually more likely to help anyone in general. So they're more likely to give to charity, for example. So it puts, this, it puts them in this general pro-social mindset. I'm feeling closer to other people in general now because one person just mimicked me. And, and so it kind of goes beyond that mimicry dyad, and, and it leads to this general feeling close to others um, kind of mindset. So, um, so it has these interesting consequences for the person being mimicked. Now, the person consequences for the mimicker, uh, there's been a lot less research on that, but what has been done um, has found some similar consequences that it leads, if, if you mimic someone else, um, as a result of, of that, you end up liking them more, you have more empathy for them. And so some of these pro-social consequences uh, seem to apply not just to the mimicky, but to the mimicker as well. You also mention in your paper um, something called interactional interactional synchrony. Uh, what's what's the difference between behavioral mimicry and interactional synchrony? Well, they're both types of um, 
of interpersonal coordination. Um, so it's the way that we kind of coordinate with other people um, when we're interacting with them, um, and often, you know, in a way, ways that we're not aware of at the time. Um, we're not thinking about this kind of coordination, but um, nonverbal coordination. Um, what's different between um, behavioral mimicry and interactional synchrony? Uh, the timing is different. So behavioral mimicry. Um, can occur within, say, a five-second window, um, where if one person um, crosses their legs and the other person crosses their legs within, say, five seconds of that, you're going to get all those consequences of mimicry um, happening there. Whereas with interactional synchrony, the timing is a much more crucial piece. Interactional synchrony is you know, often looked at on a millisecond um, basis, where there's some sort of movement um, in the interaction where both people are moving at the same time and it's at the exact same time. So there wouldn't, that five second delay would mean that there's there's not synchrony happening, but maybe there's mimicry. Um, on the other hand, uh, another difference between the two is that with uh, behavioral mimicry, um, there can be some slight variations and it still kind of counts as mimicry, whereas um, with synchrony, um, it can be very different. So with mimicry, you know, like I was saying before, if someone touches their ear and the other person touches the top of their head, that those two gross motor movements are pretty similar and would lead to this feeling of we're sharing the same gestures and mannerisms and lead to all the downstream consequences of mimicry. Uh, with synchrony, sometimes um, the way it's studied in the literature is people are looking at actually very different movements, but those movements are happening at exactly the same moment in time. So it's not crucial with synchrony for the movements to be the same or even very similar. They can be very different movements, but they're happening at precisely the same moment. So how, how do they relate to each other? Do they have different purposes? Well, they so far... Um, there's been a little less on the downstream consequences of um, interpersonal synchrony, but what has been done so far suggests that uh, they serve similar purposes and have similar consequences in terms of the prosociality that's engendered by them. Um, you know, they're finding the same kinds of things with synchrony as they've been finding with mimicry. So, so far it seems pretty similar, but um, I think it's too early to say there hasn't been as much on it yet. What can you tell us about social contagion? Um, social contagion um, refers to kind of a, um, there's several types of social contagion. There's a group of different types where you can have uh, people picking up on other aspects of others. So it can be, there's um, a literature on goal contagion where um, if you perceive someone behaving in sort of a goal-directed manner, um, you automatically pick up on their goals or sort of uh, catch their goals. And so that's why it's called uh, goal contagion. Um, same thing with in the attitudes literature, um, where people oftentimes sort of their their attitudes or opinions converge over time and um, become more similar. So uh, picking up on other people's attitudes, picking up on their moods um, and emotions. There's a literature on emotional contagion, where uh, seeing someone. Um, um, you know, make certain facial expressions. Um, you end up mimicking those facial expressions and end up picking up their uh, picking up on their emotions as a result. And um, before you know it, you're feeling the same thing that these other people are are feeling around you. And so that's kind of referred to as emotional contagion. So there's different forms or varieties of, of the social contagion, just sort of um, 
kind of morphing into the people around you in a variety of ways. What, what about complementarity? I know you, that you mentioned it towards the end of, of, um, of your article. What can you tell us about that? Well, there's been less done on complementarity, but it's really interesting. Um, certainly when there's um, power dynamics between um, two interactants, so one person clearly has you know, power over the other person, you see a lot of complementarity where if one person has dominant um, nonverbal behaviors, the other person will automatically take on more submissive nonverbal behaviors. So on the surface, this may seem to contradict um, all the mimicry research showing that these nonverbal uh, behaviors are mimicked. Um, in this case, they're kind of anti-mimicked and, and people are doing the opposite um, in these specific situations of power differentials. Um, but I think, you know, um, it's another way of automatically reacting um, to another person. And instead of the mimicking reaction, you get you know, them behaving in a complementary way. We know that it happens in these power um, situations, but what we don't know is when else does that happen and what else can create those, those kinds of automatic reactions that are, uh, you know, not mimicry, but still interpersonal coordination. So it's still a type of coordination where person A does one thing and person B automatically reacts with something that's complementing that. So in a way, it's just as much... Uh, it's it's just as much coordination involved as with mimicry. It's just a, it's a different variation of it. So I think um, you know a lot more could be done to explore um, the role that complementarity plays and and what kinds of um, situational features can lead to more complementarity uh, rather than mimicry. I just wanted to talk about a little paragraph that you have in, in your paper relating to the neurology of mimicry. You mentioned this very very quickly, and I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. Well, so um, there's been a lot of research um, on mirror neurons, of course, and it's become very popular. Um, and whether it's, it's a mirror system in the brain where certain regions of the brain are, are activated upon both perceiving a behavior and engaging in the behavior, or whether it's actually specific mirror neurons, um, you know, either way, there's this this interesting, these interesting findings um, that really there could be uh, a neurological explanation for why um, there's this overlap between seeing someone do something and then doing that same behavior yourself. Um, I think what we don't know is what the connection is between that mirror system and uh, this kind of non-conscious mimicry, um, the behavioral results that people have been finding. Um, I know that people are there's some folks now looking at the connection between the two and trying to show that there's a correlation between the mirror system activation and people non-consciously mimicking other people's behaviors more. Um, and I guess it would start with just finding that correlation and then um, kind of going from there. But right now it's just at the beginning of connecting these two um, very different literatures, the behavioral literature on, on, on mimicry and then um, – all the work in neuroscience showing, you know, the, that this system um, can be activated. So uh, right now it's just kind of at the beginning of connecting these two things, but hopefully in the next, you know, five or ten years we'll know a lot more about that connection. You mentioned you mentioned at the end of, of, of the paper uh, something about studying mimicry in groups of more than two people. What exactly can we learn about that? Um, 
I think it would be really neat to look uh, at what happens when there's more than two people interacting. So, you know, who who tends to be most mimicked within a group? Let's say there's three or even four people in a group. Um, is it the person that tends to be mimicked most uh, that ends up becoming the leader um, of the group? Um, is the person who's more mimicked, uh, does that person end up being more popular within the group, more liked within the group, more influential in determining kind of the decisions that that group uh, makes? I think you, know, you could also look at what kinds of mannerisms and gestures tend to be most mimicked within uh, a group setting. So perhaps the reason some people are more mimicked than others within a group is because they engage in more mimicable um, mannerisms, so to speak. So they're engaging in some behaviors that tend to be easily mimicked, so people end up mimicking them, and as a result of that mimicry, they become more popular or more influential or becoming leaders in the group. Um, and, you know, are there certain personality traits that lead some people to be more mimicked than others? So um, there hasn't been much on this, um, so I think that this is a, an exciting direction for future research to see what happens now, take it beyond the dyad, there's more than two people, you know, um, what and what kind of mannerisms, who is mimicked more, why and what happens once that happens, what are the, um, you know, consequences of that in terms of um, the decisions and so forth that the group's making. Well, Dr. Chartrand, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquet Paz. Thanks for listening.